listening to Clary Vacation on Springfield's Talk 1041. Hey everybody, welcome to Clarification. It's another beautiful day in the Ozarks. I'm your host, James Clary. We have a very special guest today. Wolf is calling from London, and he and I connected, and I I followed uh, many threads of his. He has some really interesting viewpoints, and we we generally talk to people here in the states. uh, Though we've had we've had a few overseas conversations, but I I really wanted to talk to Wolf to get his perspective on what's going on in the UK but also the EU, because we, we really don't get enough news uh, from the other side of the pond. Wolf, welcome to Clarification. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. We're glad to have you. So I want to start with, and believe me, like I told you, this conversation can go any direction. Man, we talk about whatever we want yeah. to. But I did no see worries. some news about this Digital Service Act. Now, I I realize that because of Brexit, the UK is no longer part of the EU, but have you, is there much talk about this Digital Service Act, which sounds like a uh, censorship law to me? So you've got a lot of it um, across the board in context of uh, your social media and stuff. You'll see a lot of things popping up where people are getting in trouble for things that states online. Right. And um, this, this all falls part of it. I mean, the, the whole narrative politically has been pushed in that direction of censorship any, anyway because everything's falling over, right? So uh, there's, there's no more defense in, in this context of stuff. So you, you tend to see a lot of the, these types of things come across. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we can talk about everything and anything in that context. It's it's across the board in regards to how things are being manipulated to justify it. I mean, we, there was an article that came over, um, I think it was a couple of months ago, where they were talking about uh, the target they had in context of the asylum seeker application, applications being, um, being or going through the process being being done by government and they were quoting they're saying that they've reached target um that they are now that they've now uh done the target that they set out to do uh which was seventeen thousand or whatever but then if you go into the detail you would see that effectively they didn't produce anything extra and that we've actually had an increase in context of the amount of outstanding um, asylum claims there is, but they keep on using all of these languages to, to manipulate stuff, and, and it, it seems there's a bit more of an awareness coming through yeah. from people across the board. Um, I mean, we, there's so many, so, so many examples of the one of them, for instance, is um, HM Revenue, which is our tax guys. They've got 54 uh, behavioral insight psychologists on, on payroll whose whole goal and uh, job is to manipulate people and paying maximum amount of tax. So they would use language and things within context of the letters or the communications with you to create maximum distress with it um, for you to pay so you don't question things. And that's, that's been ongoing for years. And there's so many examples of people just complying and then paying this. And but there seems to be a general awareness of this and a lot of pushback happening in that regard, which causes friction. And that's why you tend to see all of these censorship type of um, 
policies and things being being announced and perceived. Right. You know, it, it seems from the the view from abroad that Europeans in general, and I'm honestly thinking more of the French, but it seems that the Europeans in general are a little more proactive in their uh their protests of their government, you know, the Yellow Jackets in France and the, the ongoing yep. protests there and the uh, farmers in the Netherlands. What is the situation in in the UK in general, London specifically? I know you've got uh, Sadiq Khan as your mayor and now you have the first kind of a uh, what he's an Indian descent prime minister, right? I mean. Which is, you know, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people applaud the fact, just like I did when we elected Obama. He turned out to be a travesty, but I was proud that we elected a black man. What is the feeling about along those lines in in the UK? Now, he's a conservative, right? The prime minister currently? Uh, yes, yes, yes. He's, he's an unelected um, prime minister. Oh, like, that's right. Also. Yeah, why don't you go into yeah, that a little so, bit? I mean, so, so the process of the year is you, you get elected by the party. So the conservative party tends to vote to their leaders and that would be the, because they, they won the election, that would be the prime minister. But in regards to when we lose a prime minister, like we've done many times over the last year, um, it goes to a party election. So there you go through this whole roadshow where they go to conservative party, party members. And then the party members actually vote who is the new leader, which then becomes the prime minister. Now, the conservative party's got about 100, 110,000 members. So there's one of your first flaws in regards to democracy where 110,000 people dictate who the new prime minister would be if one failed. But in regards to him, it didn't even go to that because of Liz Truss being out so quickly. Yeah, Liz so Truss, was, they, she was in like, what, three weeks, something like that? I think it was 52 days. Right, like that, yeah, it was a, a record yeah. term <laughs> as prime minister. So she was booted yeah, out. It's the second quickest. Yeah. Second quickest. Okay, so she was yeah. booted out. And now explain how the new guy was then installed. So they then it had to go to um, endorsement. So the actual MPs for the Conservative Party had to endorse who's going to be the next leader. And they've got a threshold. So I think it used to be like 25 people, whatever. And then, and then it goes through these rounds. So um, if there's 10 candidates, the ones every round that has the most um, endorsements are the ones that go through and then you lose one. And then they simply upped the threshold to in, enormous amount. I think it was like 100 or plus MPs that had supported. And then people started extracting. So no, she didn't get enough, or the, the other candidates didn't get enough um, MPs to endorse them. So they just appointed um, Rishi as the prime minister due to that, um, because there was no competition because of the high thresholds and stuff. So it, it didn't even go to the party members as votes. Right. So n not, not only was it not the 110,000, it was already a small population in the country, but it was no one. It was literally the 200 MPs of the party that voted him. So, and that's that's why he's prime minister. Gotcha. So when does his term expire? When is This is my question. When is the next election where the people get to choose the prime minister, if indeed they do it all? We've got about two minutes left. 
Uh, no worries. Um, it should be next year, but they can announce it when when they want. So they've got like this massive um, uh, the term where they can choose where they they cost the uh, election. Now it, it depends on the party. So there's argument within the party, given that the polls indicate that there will be massive losses. Um, so they don't know if it should be at the end, if like very late next year or very, very early next year. Wow. Um, so they've got contradicting views within the party itself, which would which one would be the best for them. So it's and not even, it's, it's not a standard time. I mean, that's that's amazing to us. I mean, our elections are always in yeah. November. I mean, there's no question. You're saying they choose yeah. when they want to have the election? The MPs? Well, it's, it's not, like, they can't keep it on forever. I think it's every, between four and, four and five years, so they need to choose within that, um, ah, okay. that spread. spread. Um, but right. they, they can choose when. Uh, but the, I, historically, when a uh, prime minister has come in at the back end of a very long term, so the Conservatives have been in control for 14 years, um, historically, they've always tried to extend it as far as possible because you tend to be at a really bad place politically. So you need to, you, you try to hope for something positive that's going to happen, that's, yeah. that's going to cause um, improvement which is probably what they're trying to do. I mean, he's, he did five pledges when he just came in, when he was saying he's going to half inflation, stop the boats, uh, stop the NHS waiting list, um, create growth, I think was the other one and stuff. And like none of those things have happened. So, of course, he's, he's of a politician, yeah. man. Well, we're talking to Wolf from, yeah. the, from the United Kingdom, from the great city of London, and we're proud to have you. It's clarification. We'll be back in just a second. Hey, everybody, it's Clarification. Welcome back. We're talking to our friend, our new friend, Wolf from the UK, from London. I really appreciate you joining us, man. It's fascinating to get a different viewpoint. You know, I don't know if I told you, we're in the middle of the United States in a little town called Springfield in the middle of the Ozark Mountains. It's not that little. I mean, it's 250,000 people, but... You know, we yeah. just it's nice to get a different perspective, uh, particularly the the USA News Service is horrible giving us news from Europe. And our oh, countries yeah. are so tied together. It's really incredibly important that we understand what's going on. So you and I were talking, you own several small businesses. I mean, I couldn't believe when you read your resume, I'm like, my God, I thought I was busy. But So you were mm -hmm. telling me a story about the uh, something that happened to you and the, the state of the police. Why don't you tell our audience about that? That sounded interesting. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, to give you some context also, uh, I'm originally from South Africa, and crime is severe there. Yeah. So I come from a background where I, I fought armed robbers in the middle of the night with my brother, and um, not, nothing other than underpants on. Uh, that's a different story. But um, so I've, I've, been, I've, I've been exposed to a lot of um, criminality and, and quite harsh and, and dangerous criminality from there. Now, the UK overall, you, you have a massive compliance population that's quite good and um, good people and stuff like that. So that is most probably why you don't have 
uh, insane assertion in regards to crime currently, but the police force has been so depleted financially and in context of the amount of people in it, etc. So, I mean, I can't remember when it's lost time I've actually seen police on the streets other than if they drive past in emergency vehicles. In London, um, so you don't a, see police regularly patrolling? No, not at all. And, and I mean, I've, I've got a restaurant, and I mean, one of the, one of the things I pursue is community. So that's my core value in regards to my businesses. So yeah. I used to have the police always come in there and, and, and get coffees and stuff like that. And I'm very I'm involved in the community, so I would talk to them and stuff. And they're just all gone. I haven't seen them for years now. Wow. And I had an incident where um, this girl was uh, shoplifting wine from my, from my restaurant. I've got quite expensive wine. So it's all South African teams. So they're between 70 and 100 pounds each. Um so that's what hundred and twenty hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, right. And then, um, yeah, and then um, I caught her one day because I'm very, I'm much more aware than your average fair in regards to crime because right. where I'm from. Right. So I noticed when she walked in, I re- immediately knew she was there for for something. And then um, I just positioned myself and I caught her as she walked out uh, with the wine. And I was actually I was talking to my wife on on the phone, and um, so as she walked out, I grabbed her arm. And then I said, well, you need to pay for this. And she said, oh, I'll just take this. And she gave me the one. I said, well, the one on, under your coat also, which I saw. <laughs> and then she gave that to me. And then my wife was laughing over the phone. She's, she's seen me interact with these things. I've done a couple of, over the years. And she's seen me um, fought for robbers and things like that. So she was quite enjoying it. And then the girl freaked out completely and started screaming and, and stuff. And it's quite dangerous because I'm I'm, uh. I'm I'm a big, big guy. I'm six foot five, and I'm three hundred pounds. So um, I, I tend to be the one that would be seen as in the wrong any type of physical altercation. Right. Size. So she was, she was kicking off and stuff, and I just had to put one hand, so I just let it go. I thought she's scared enough. Um, she'll be good. She won't come back. But then as she ran away, when I walked in, one of my staff members said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she was scoping us out earlier this week. That's where these this type of interactions aren't scoped. It's not like a, a movie where it is in advance. I knew she, she was there previously this week and she probably took stuff. Right. So when I got into my CCTV, I saw she visited me every single day for a week, taking two of these bottles to the contest of £1,100. So I was angry, and I, I went out to catch her, and then I started talking to the community, all those local businesses and people I knew. And I think it was about 25 minutes, and I knew exactly who her um, who her friends were that discussed this with her. Um, I knew she was a, a heroin addict. Um, I knew her address, so I got, I got her address and stuff. Wow. So I provided all these things to the police. In, in the process and stuff, and just a radio silence for, for almost two months. And I um, I even escalated to my local um, MP, Vicky Foxtrot. Yeah. Uh, I got a mail from her a week ago um, saying that I haven't contacted the police yet, so that's why they stuff. So just rubbish all, all over. But anyway, so the police contacted me um, last week and said, yeah, Okay, they're going to now try and see if they can catch her, but because of the time that's elapsed with this, they don't have a thing which they call urgency in, in regards to it and stuff, so she'll probably get away with it. So they need to do a thing where they do some sort of section demand, and if she doesn't show up for an interview at the police station, then they can go in and arrest her and stuff. So we'll see if anything comes from it now, but if you think about it, when I went out and I checked with the community and the local businesses, 
I found about 55 videos in total between all the businesses of her taking stuff. And she's been doing it over two years. And all the local, and all of them have reported this to, to the police numerous times. And this individual is just walking around full there. Uh, I mean, we saw it. We saw it today. Actually, she, she walked it, in the street today. It reminds me yeah, of that story uh, that came out recently here about the New York shoplifting. It said that yes. something like ninety percent of all the shoplifting in New York's done by like a hundred people. It's yes. just, and the police, yeah. it you know. That's what ties us together, Wolf. This is a global issue. The same thing's happening here. Police ignore crime. We have these prosecutors. You know, I mean, you know the whole story. The BLM riots. None of those people were charged. They're going after Mm -hmm. their political opponents. This woman is probably seen as a victim in some sort. You know, she's an addict. Mm -hmm. She's down on her luck. We don't want to put her in prison. But, man, it just leads to anarchy eventually. Well, I told I told the police officer I'm, I don't mind. I'll go arrest her. I'll do assistance arrest on mine. Um, doing that, and any told him no. If you have my size difference and things like that, I'll probably be charged for assault. assault right? I, yeah, I was aggressive, whatever it may be. That is really difficult. I mean, I, I have I have a um, Airbnb also, and I had a bunch of kids in there. Um, that were doing balloons and cocaine and stuff like that, uh, uh, causing a nuisance. So I went in that morning to evict them in in the process, and then uh, they didn't want to go, and uh, they they made a massive amount of damage to my place. But anyway, I got the police in for that, and I first had to have a discussion with the police in regards to the legality of me actually being in my own property. Because you've got a uh, tenant, if you have an agreement, they've got rights and you can't enter the property and stuff. Right. But I had to explain, yeah, and I had to explain to the police that this is a license agreement because it was a short let, so effectively they've violated the terms, so they are trespassing, stuff like that. So the interesting thing about that is I, I had a discussion with my uncle about this. Um, he's in Australia. He immigrated there from South Africa about 20 years ago. And he was saying it's just how bizarre things have changed over the years because 20 years ago, ownership actually meant something. Yes. If you owned the property, you owned the business and stuff, and you phoned the police and said, these people are destroying my stuff, they'll come in there, they'll we'll probably have beaten them, right. taken them away, and arrested them. But your ownership meant something okay. because, of course, ownership is supposed to mean something. You put all the risk up, you... However, you obtained that in regards to your savings and and yeah. and building. You I mean, it. private property ownership is one of the foundations of personal liberty. Exactly, and it is going away, okay, and it's no, no, no. happening globally. The same thing is going on here. We have squatters that will find a home for sale. They'll break into the house, change the locks, and, I mean, it can take years to get them out. It's absolutely it's ridiculous. Year. Yeah, it's the same year. Yeah. Exactly the same. Yeah. And it, and it costs you a fortune. I, I've got a friend that's that's got a squatter at the moment, and he's had a year total um, getting the eviction notice with it, and he's lost a year's um, income damaged your property, and of course, then he needs to pay for the solicitor fees and the things to get these people out of there. It's just insane. It makes no sense at all anymore. Well, it, you know, I think it's really important. Uh, that's one thing I, I think is really great about social media is that two people from just completely different sides of the, well, of the Atlantic anyway, 
can connect and and then we literally begin to connect the dots that these are global issues and there seems to be an underlying plan to this wolf this i I don't believe in coincidences as bannon likes to say there are no conspiracies but there are no coincidences what are your thoughts on that yeah, I mean, oof, I hear that. I hear all the conspiracy theories and stuff like that. But it's a, it's a thing that my uncle always told me. And he said, never underestimate um, the power of um, incompetence and opportunism <laughs> in, in regards to that. And I think I think a big problem we do have is that we've, we've built these machines. And these machines have almost—they've got a mind of their own. So, if you think about—if you think about everything in, in the world, everything pursues one thing: it pursues growth. If you don't grow, you, you die. Right. So, everything has, has got a pursuit of growth—from a virus to a human being to a plant. Everything pursues growth. Now, if you look at a thing like a government, a government's pursuits also, of course, to grow. So, what does a government need to grow? It needs problems. Because if they have a problem, they get a budget, and they can hire people. And if True. they solve the problem, that disappears. True. The problem needs to become bigger, always. So that's why every time you have government involvement in anything, the problem just becomes bigger and bigger. I mean, one of, one of the things that I've read about when I saw is this whole thing about Los Angeles. I think Joe Rogan did a thing about it where he was interviewing this one guy and was saying that the people that manage the homelessness in, in Los Angeles get paid like 250 k Oh, right. Right. I saw yeah. that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah, 30 so in seconds, essence, I think, yeah. Yeah. So in essence, I think fundamentally across the board, the issue is not so much that it's a conspiracy. The issue is that the existence of these things are determined by growing and by the growth for this is for its had issues and problems. Right. And we've, we've almost as, as humans, we've given up our ability to fend and look after ourselves and keep on giving more and more power to the government to these governments absolutely we got to take a quick break wolf we'll come back on the other side it's clarification we'll be right back hey everybody welcome back it's clarification one of my favorite songs of all time warren zevon singing werewolves of london because we actually have wolf on the phone from london i thought that song was kind of appropriate so wolf before we broke you were i think you outlined a really interesting theory that everything has to grow and that government has to grow so the the problems really just become compounded right yes yeah, it's and it's all. I mean, if you look at any anything you, you get involved in, especially over here, because we've got very old institutions over here. Yeah, we've got things that existed for a very long time. But when you actually have a real issue, you start getting into it. The bureaucracy of it and the amount of time spent on actually just identifying, moving, uh, approving the problem and stuff, the cost of that far exceeds what the solution of that is. So I'll give you a, another example. Uh, my son's got additional needs to insulate soccer. Now, I had to get an application in for um, care for him in schooling so that he has support. And it took me over two and a half years to do that. And it was a significant amount of fighting and stuff. Me and my wife had to do um, going through the bureaucracy of this and getting the approval for it. Wow. Now, in essence, if you look at his problem, what he required is he, he just required the speech therapist, so someone to mm-hmm. um, to just spend time with him every every weekend and do that. Now, over here, 
If you go privately, it's going to cost you about 300, 400 pounds a shot for that. So the cost of the do it is per, per session? Yes. So you need to oh be extremely my. wealthy to be able to do that. Wow. And then for the NHS, of course, it's for free. It's, right. Well, when I say for free, it's for quotation marks. Quotation marks, right. Marks, so right. Of that. right. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but so we went through that process and it took so long where, for instance, in South Africa, you do have like private healthcare, then you, you've got um, state healthcare, but state healthcare is extremely poor. But for instance, the private healthcare there is not like, for example, in the US where it's super expensive, it's pretty balanced. So as a middle class or even uh, a wealthy individual there, you, I would have had the ability to have care from him from day one, which is what the problem is, is to you just need that care with but, it. But, but well, let me just interrupt. Let me interrupt real quick. The two and a half years you spent trying to get uh, speech therapy for your son, he, that, those were probably the, the most important two and a half years in his speech development. It almost made it exactly. not, oh my gosh, it's ridiculous. Exactly. And then, and, and if you think about the cost of the engagement, just those individuals that you spoke with, um, the cost of them responding, filling in out all of these hundreds of forms, the, the chairs and committees it has to go through, my cost of actually spending it, my lost cost because we don't have care for them. We're, we're alone in this country, so we don't have family or anything that can help us in that regard. So if you just start equating the cost of it and stuff, it's, it's stupid. Yeah, just layers and layers of bureaucracy, and it all costs money. Exactly. So anybody here that says we need national health care, you would would, uh, probably object to that, right? Yes, I mean, I... There needs to be uh, decent hybrid systems across the board, but overall, I am so... I don't want to say anti-government, but I'm, I'm just so disappointed in how these institutions work and the structures of it, given that I have found failure in every single one of them as soon as I needed them, that I'm not a big believer of government at all anymore. Yeah. And fundamentally, government originally existed for us to to do the things we can't afford as, as individual, as a group. You know, right. Military, like et cetera. Right. Exactly, yeah. But we're at a point in time where it's supposed to be smaller because a lot of these things now are things that um, are cheaper. There are things that are very individualized. You can even produce power on your own now. We couldn't back in the day. Right. And then um, the other thing is because of our connectivity with it, we can do things like subscription taxation where specific groups that use a specific thing can do a subscription model to pay for it, being roads or, or, or Medicaid or whatever. It yeah. may be. Um, I mean, it's, there's this good book, Daylight Robbery, uh, which I would advise anybody to read. So it's about, it's about how taxation actually determines um, every aspect of our history. So from how we lived to how many kids we have, etc. And it's got a good example there where it talks about the term daylight robbery. So I don't know if you know where that comes from. What is it? What is Say that again. What is the name of that? A daylight robbery. Daylight robbery. Okay. And it's a book. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. So it's a, it's a book by a tax expert. Okay. We'll put it, um, uh, we'll make sure and get it in the show notes. Yeah. All right. Thank no you. Worries. But, um, 
he talks about it over there. So we, we had a thing in the UK in the 1800s, which was called um, the window tax. And the concept behind it was they taxed you for the amount of windows you have. <laughs> the theory being that if you have more windows, you pay more tax because you've got a bigger place and stuff. Right. But what, it, what happened is that disproportionately people in the countryside were taxed more. And what started happening, so if you drive through even London today, you'll see some homes where you'll see a window frame bricked up to the top. And it was actually bricked up during that era because they didn't want to pay the extra tax for it or it was oh affordable. God. Yeah. Un- unintended consequences of government action. Yes. Yeah. 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 So the interesting thing is that it became so bad that we, they were starting to build properties with no windows at all. And um, the 1800s and stuff. And that coincided with when we, I think it was when the Black Blade and stuff came out because people became really ill because yeah. um, they cooked indoors and stuff like that and all, all of that. So that taxation shows you on how it actually influenced the way we lived. And then the, where the term daylight robbery comes from is when MPs finally voted that law or that taxation down in Parliament, um, the opposition screamed, daylight robbery, daylight robbery, because of the, the daylight of the rocks from the windows. Oh, my God. That's where that, that term comes from. But, yeah, all of, all of those interventions is, is, is the troublesome. Well, and it, you know, I, I discuss this a lot with my friends. It's like we don't really own anything. Yes, I own a car. Mm-hmm. I don't owe any money on it. But if I don't pay property tax on that car, the government can seize it. I own a house. Yes. But if I don't pay property tax, the government can seize it. I don't really own anything unencumbered. No. You know? No. Yeah. It's just exactly. it's just frightening, man. And the same thing over there. We've got about a minute and a half left. I definitely want to get into in the last segment. I want to talk about South Africa because that what's okay, going so on in that is. country is just and you can illuminate me a little bit. I know, but it's it's heartbreaking what I see. I don't know. Once you set it up, we got about a minute. No worries. Um, so I, I was born in South Africa, um, but I've got a, my dad's German, so he's originally from Berlin, also an interesting guy. He used to smuggle across the German wall and, um, <laughs> he used to be a down, bouncer for Joe Cocker. Um, wow. And, um, That's so cool. Yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, but anyway, he, he came over to South Africa and met my, my mom there, which is, she's Dutch. So I grew up there, but I grew up with a European um, culture background. So you were kind of a bore in a way, right? A bore is is, is the the native Afrikaans. um, Okay. What we can call a white population. But um, so I grew up in that culture and stuff, but I had a bit more intense European influence than um, my peers uh, over there. Well, very good. When we we come back, I really want to, spend at least three or four minutes on what's going on in South Africa today because it is gut-wrenching. It's clarification. We're talking to our friend Wolf. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's clarification. Had to play some Sex Pistols with my friend Wolf from London on the phone. Another uh, kindred soul. He's in the restaurant business and a whole bunch of other businesses. But, man, I know how hard that is for doing it for over 45 years. But, Wolf, before we we broke, you kind of was telling me you were raised in South Africa. And a lot of Americans read the stories about what's going on there. You know, I think 
it ties together with everything we're talking about. There is serious racial strife in South Africa. And the, the current government, as far as I can tell, they've given a green light to go after the white farmers and that they're being gang raped, tortured, murdered. Why don't you speak on that a little bit, if you can? Well, it's, that's, that's actually that's actually been ongoing for quite a while. Uh, it's just it's just getting more uh, attention out there. But to own private land in South Africa, you're statistically it's you're more probable dying or being killed on there at if at, if you went and fought in the Rocky War um, that you guys have. So you've wow. got a bigger risk of being killed there, and it's quite brutal. Um, so I, I know about a lot of stories where they they burn kids. In, um, with with hot water uh, to death, and, and they would rape uh, all the the women in front of people and then torture them to death. It's extremely brutal. It's, it's something you can just think of your your worst type of movie and nightmare. Um, but it's very it's very it, it happens quite a lot. Um, and South Africans still does today, and you have parties there like the EFF, which sings the the song which is um, Kill the Boer. Yeah. You'll yeah. Right. Right. So for our um, listeners, the Boer were the original Dutch colonized colonies that moved into South Africa. And there were the Boer Wars. But so anyway, they're the whites. And there's a song called Kill the Boers. Right. Yes, there okay. is. It, it used to be an opposition song for the ANC as they um, fought apart over the, over the years. Um, so there shouldn't be any place for it now, of course. Right. Um, but it's being sung, sung at rallies and things like that. And especially the context, given how many white South Africans are being killed at the moment and how dangerous it is to, to farm there. What? That they, they sing this song that's what we're I mean, Wolf, I can't imagine being a white South African, owning a farm and staying. I mean, I would get the hell out. It's terrifying. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it is, but it's it's what what you know and what you love and, and what you believe in. Right. Um, I mean, I've got a lot of a lot of friends still there, and I've got friends that had international influence and stuff that's very embedded into the culture and things over there. So, I mean, it's a difficult thing to explain to people. You, it's where you grow up, right? Yeah. So you've got that 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 thing. I had. To, one of my friends over here is also a South African um, that's also immigrated two years ago. We were talking about how you have all of these uh, kid gangs running around in London and stop stabbing people and, and doing all kinds of rubbish. Yeah. And the interesting thing we were talking about is when we grew up, we used to roam the neighborhoods. You know, you always were a group of kids. Yes. You roamed the neighborhoods and things. But you used to be quite fearful of doing extremely stupid things because of the community element. So it didn't matter who came past you. If there was an older person um, that came past you and saw you doing something wrong, they would stop. They would address you. You, you would even get a beating at times yes. of that. So you had this natural... Um, respect and fear because there was a community element to it. There, there was like, you know, it takes a village to raise a kid. There was a right. village. There was really a village that looked after you. But now, and because of all the laws and how we've structured and things, stuff like that, 
people look the other way in all contexts now. There's no no stopping and, and, and telling kids they're, they're doing anything. Anyway, because it's dangerous for you as, a, as an individual to do that. Um, never mind for if they have knives or tactics or whatever it may be, but also in context of the the conflict questions, why, why are you engaging with them and stuff like that. So the whole world dynamic in that context has changed. And in South Africa, we had a very big element of being part of a community and growing up as a village. Um, my my youth was really good. So I, I was born in 83. And I would say all the way from 83 until 96, um, our, 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 how we grew up was extremely safe, extremely community-driven. Um, quite conservative in context of values and things like that, but yeah. that has good, good consequences also. So we we grew up in that. So I've I've, I've seen that and experienced that, and then it went into the, the process of aggression release today. Um, and it's, there's a lot of things. I mean, South Africa has got so many layers and dynamics to it. But in one of the main main things to try and explain to people in South Africa. If you're wealthy, and wealth there is a measure against world wealth, it's not a lot. You, know, you may be a dollar millionaire, but you're not going to be a multi-dollar millionaire. Right. But you'll live in such extreme wealth. Um, my brother-in-law, for instance, he lives on a state. It's a golf estate. So he's got this golf course running through his house. It's on the golf course. Um, he's got a massive five-bedroom house with soft courses. He's got two staff. Um, yeah. In the house, one stuff outside of the house. Um, biggest house you can imagine, extremely, extremely um, opulent. Uh, well, opulent in every context. Right. And his house costs $250,000. Wow. Which, which here you'd get a two bedroom ranch. Yeah, right. No, I get it. I experienced the same thing in Mexico. My uncles yeah. lived yeah. there. He lived like a king, he had a chauffeur. Yeah two maids but yes. he was like you know the the maids make the equivalent of a do- american dollar a day so yes. yeah 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 i mean I mean, if you think my i mean my town out of here in london it's a three bedroom it's got only got a garden and anything and this place costs a million oh so wow. it's just it's just insane but anyway, so to, to give you an example of that, so you have this massive amount of wealth, and he lives on this estate, but these massive three-meter walls around the estate. You've got armed guards with machine guns walking around, biometric scanning and stuff going in and out of it. And if you drive out of the estate and you turn left, you drive about 300 meters, you hit a shanty town, which is the poorest people yeah. on earth. Yeah. They, they live on less than a dollar a day, um, not don't have anything. And stuff. So, if you have those two extremes residing next to you, of course you'll have violence. Yeah. If one person wants what the other person doesn't have, you don't have that middle thing. And that whole divide has just increased over the last 30 or 40 years. So it just goes up and up and up, and these disparities become more. So, you have extremely aggressive interactions when these things tend to happen. They tend to be quite brutal. Um, I, you know, I mentioned previously, me and my brother. We had an engagement with armed robbers. Yes, I wanted to hear that story, so I'm glad you got to it. You and your brother, go ahead, tell us what happened. We got five minutes. No worries. So we we were at this place called Belito, which is a a beach town, and um, we got attacked one night. 
by armed robbers, and we, we ended up fighting fighting them. So me and my brother are both quite big individuals. So I'm, I'm six five, trying to my brother six eight. Um, he is <laughs> three hundred and eighty pounds. He's, he's a really big dude. Yeah. Um, and uh, we had this engagement, and we fought this guy. This guy was maybe 160, 180 pounds. Yeah. But when we had the physical engagement with him, he was one of the toughest opponents I've ever dealt with. I mean, he, he just, he hurt, and he was really difficult to to, to stop. Um, I mean, we, we smashed him into a wall. We smashed him on the ground. Uh, it was a massive brawl in the end. And once we got him down... Um, and bound it and stuff, uh, the police came over and they, they assaulted him extremely. Uh, so they were hitting him with guns and stuff like that. But when, um, when we picked up our evidence and stuff, uh, a couple of days afterwards at the police station, we spoke to the police, the detective at that stage. They managed to link him up to 22 murders in that, oh, church, in that wow. year, him and his gang. So if you could think about that type of engagement, we were actually, we didn't know it at the time, but we were fighting for our lives. Wow. We killed 22 people in just that year. Was he but armed? That, was he armed with a gun? Uh, yes. Yeah, he, he had a gun, and then his group had guns outside. But they, they dispersed as soon as we engaged. Wow. Um, we were just disarmed him. Um, but in, in essence, you were lucky, brother. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been lucky and stuff. But I'm quite, I'm quite um, action-bound, so I tend to be quite quick with these things. Um, and my dad taught us a lot of things. He used to be a street fighter in, in Berlin, in, in Germany, just after the Second World War. So but, we had, we but you know, skills. bring it back to the point <laughs> you made. Yeah, the point you made is that people are afraid to step in. I had an incident yesterday at a place I worked where mm-hmm. a woman, a street person, walked into our this restaurant and assaulted the manager. She threw a drink in her face and... I mean, yeah. I held her. I called 911. I said, you're not going anywhere, lady. And the dispatch on 911 is like, well, maybe you should just let her go. You know, we don't want anyone to get hurt. Yeah. I'm like, no, I'm not letting her go. You come and arrest her. But it's just different, yeah. man. People, there's no responsibility for their actions. We got a couple yeah. minutes left, but- Wolf. Just go ahead. Bring it on. Whatever you got. Well, I just wanted to say, I'm um, coming back to that individual and the other thing that I found out about his history, he used to be a, a child soldier in Mozambique with the, the oh. wars they had there. So the reality of it is if you if you have that type of engagement with a person, you understand he comes from a world where he had nothing. Yeah. And even if his, his family and things were taken away from him at a very young age, very aggressively. So you do understand where the toughness and, and brutality comes from. It's just being on the other end of that, of course, it's, it's not um, ideal. But yeah, so that, that was my experience in that context. Is there hope for South Africa? I know they've, I really wanted to get into this, uh, the BRICS thing. I hope you'll come back sometime, Wolf, because this conversation's been fascinating. Uh, Yeah, I really want to, I'd like to kind of count on you as our eyes and ears in Europe, because I don't know, the the perspective is is fascinating to me. We've got a, a minute left, just... Wrap it up with with anything you got about what's going on in the UK or South Africa, for that matter. Well, I mean, UK and South Africa, everything is becoming overregulated. It's all government's um, influence in all aspects. South Africans, uh, one thing to say about them is they're extremely resilient, and um, they tend to be quite 
with survivors. So you do, even when power is going, you get solar set up and water is going, tanks are being installed. So they, they are survivors in the essence of it. I mean, they're, they're one of the guys, they, they had the Second World War where they um, defeat, were defeating the British in the 1900s. And in the end, the British had to open up um, camps where they took the, the families of uh, these poors in uh, because they were doing guerrilla warfare and they were fed by the farm that you call the families and right. concentration camp. Well, we're going um, hey, we're, to have to stop it there. We are out of time. Okay. I so appreciate it. Let's definitely do this again, mm-hmm. my friend. It's clarification. We'll see you Perfect. next week.